Oh, yeah, you had to do that. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Floor You Podcast. I'm Paul Pleshek, joined as usual by my uh, partner in crime, Sonny Callahan. Sonny, how you doing? Hello, everybody. How you doing, sir? <sighs> Can't complain. Okay, okay, I do complain. I complain a lot. I complain a lot. Every day. I talk to you all the time, but you know, nobody's around, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) So we are joined today by a very special guest, somebody that Sonny and I talked about having on as soon as we uh, started talking about having a podcast and someone that we couldn't have more respect for and more appreciation for you uh, joining us. Thank you. Uh, We have Sim Chrysler. How you doing, Sim? Doing great. Doing great. <laughs> doing great. Looking forward to this. Well, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> good opportunity to talk to you two guys is always a always a pleasure. <laughs> well, this will be the first time we've had a long conversation without a cigar in our hands. So there's, there's that. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised you're not outside. What is it? It's probably freezing down there. Probably like 60 degrees. Mm. Yeah, it's it's in the 60s. So yeah. too cold. Ooh. 60s, burr. sunshine, not a cloud in the sky. Said in Wisconsin, we got three and two and a half, three inches of snow on the ground this morning, and you guys are whining about a little bit of, of maybe a light jacket. Yeah. yeah you know. One word of advice to you: move. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, uh, but I, I'm banned from most states, so it's the only place. That, well, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> the only one that still accepts me. Yeah, so there'll be there'll be there'll be few and far between. There'll be times on this show where you see me act like a fanboy, but I am a fan of this guy right here. He is a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate everything you've taught me, sir. Thank you, Sonny. Absolutely. I appreciate that. I do very much. Yeah, <laughs> we we do appreciate it. For those of you that don't know, Sim, why don't you give us a little background on your career path, where you started, where you ended up, and what you're doing now? Well, that <clears throat> that goes back a long. That's a, a long, long, that's a long, long story. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much back to when dirt was rocks. Okay. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, I first was quote unquote introduced to the flooring business working for my uncle back in the early to mid sixties. It's always the uncle. It's yeah, the yeah, mean it is. uncle. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> this guy was one of the original developers up in North Fulton County. If you, you guys around the the Atlanta area know kind of where that is. It uh, was when I was born in 1950, it was pretty backward, but as it began to go along and some roads got open, it began to open up. And my uncle after retired from Sears and Roebuck when there was a Sears and Roebuck <laughs> and as a, an executive vice president. Okay. And doing it meant with about 400,000 shares of Sears stock. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, he decided <laughs> he was a class, a, a personality had to be doing something. Right. So he started building houses, apartments, restaurants, all sorts of things. And part of that was I, I might be digging footings for him one day, but Part of it, what I kind of gravitated to was the flooring guys going out. And that was a, an interesting exposure back in the early 60s. I mean, mm-hmm. hot melt tape was just coming out, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, guys were spitting tacks, Le- doing all that kind of stuff. Did they have yeah. electricity? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was marginal electricity in some parts of where I lived <laughs> up there. Yeah, but and, but, it, but basically we did and got to work so with these the were the places. these were in the parts of Georgia where they didn't just rake the dirt on the floor, just move it yeah, around absolutely. a little bit. Get the, <laughs> you know, we were, we were, I mean, it was just the beginning of the, the tackless strip had just 
become in. Like I said, they got, yeah. guys were still, you know, t- turning tack and spitting tacks. So, you know, oh, wow. stuff like that. And, and everything was sewn basically at the time. Guys yeah. that had been doing it a while, you know, I, I got, you know, sew some closets and drop them in and that sort of thing. But as I went along, I, I really appreciated, number one, the physical demands of it. It is a hard, hard way uh-huh. to make a living. Physically Nothing demanding. Because I got to do most of the physical stuff being the being the young guy, I think I was 14 or something at the time, maybe 15. You know, I was just slipping the rolls of old hair and jute pad. Those <laughs> things are heavy, by the way. But well, I, I've said it before. When I started, it was waffle pad, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I couldn't carry a full yeah. roll of waffle pad. I had to roll yeah. it out, cut it in half, and then carry it in. This was hair and jute when it really was hair oh, and jute. Okay, horse hair roll. and jute, and it was heavy. But nonetheless, putting the stuff in, some of the early, early wall-to-wall carpets about that time, and they did some other stuff too. But basically, I worked with those guys. And by doing that and a bunch of other stuff uh, to make money, you know, I was able to put myself through Georgia Tech from 68 to 72. And I don't think you can come out of there taking no money from my parents and debt free. Not many folks can say wow. that today, of course. Especially back then. I mean, I, I didn't mean that as a shot, but no, back then it at, was. At that time, Georgia Tech, I could go to Georgia Tech for $1,000, not a quarter. A year. Wow. No. <laughs> and that, talk about a quality education for not much money. I can promise you it was tough uh, getting through there. I, when I got through four years, I was so ready to be done with school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> were, were there a lot of classes on feelings and. Uh... Oh, yeah, a lot, <laughs> lot of touchy feely stuff at Georgia Tech. <laughs> Don't get me started on the swimming course there, okay? You know, that's that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not touching that. But guys couldn't graduate because they couldn't pass swimming. Seriously, but it was it was oh, a wow. it was an interesting experience uh, that absolutely tested every part of your your makeup. And to get through there, I was I'm proud of it to have yep. gotten out of there with, with what degree? <clears throat> Chemistry. Yep. And but you know, unfortunately, on the football side, it's one of those things where when you're a Georgia Tech fan, you know, you're always, always disappointed when they lose, but you're never surprised. Never surprised. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I went through that. Now, after I left, I went to work for then Derrick Milliken. Uh, Derek, it was, it's now Milliken and Company. And at that point in time, I was really not aware when I went to work for them uh, that, that they were had just gotten into the flooring business. They bought the old Callaway Mills operation down here in LaGrange, which is where we're coming from today, and basically got into the quote-unquote home furnishings division. Large part of that was was floor covering. Uh, the rest of it was basically towels, pillowcases, and fabrics. But <clears throat> Millican ultimately got out of that because okay. they couldn't be a player. But basically went with Millican, discovered about, I don't know, nine months after I went there, they had a floor covering division. I said, well, I'd like to get down there. So I finagled around, got down to LaGrange about 1973, something like that. And I've been here ever since, basically. basically. And was with Milliken for 33 years. And, and basically, after a number of positions in manufacturing, after the first two or three years, I moved into, into the quality assurance area. Uh-huh. And, and basically, my role was, you know, I was the guy that comes after the parade, goes by with the white coveralls and the shovel and the 55-gallon drum. <laughs> you know, my, my, my job, I was tasked to, uh, and basically I did it almost my entire career, uh, except for the first two or three years, I was tasked to go out and using the skills that I had handling floor covering manually and also what I'd learned being with Milliken, which was a lot, 
to make sure that if people had a problem, if we could fix it in the field and make it work and guarantee it. Assessing and it on the, the back end. And keep it from coming back to the plant. <laughs> Milliken did not like to ship it out and then have to pay for shipping it back. They, they did not like that at all. So that was kind of my task. And I got to go during that period of time to last count 83 foreign countries. Wow. Every one of the 50 states, the smallest number that I've been to any one state is five times. And so, you know, basically mm. all the Canadian provinces, including the Maritimes, got to go a lot of places, see a lot of things. Takes a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Did, did a lot of sweating, a lot of work, and this was this was a lot, a lot of out there. How many? What was your? Uh, what was your? What's your mileage like on your frequent flyer? Bob? Well, I, I think about four million with Delta, about two million with Eastern. If you remember Eastern, anybody remember Eastern? Paul, I don't know if you remember them or not. I'm, I'm too young. I'm too young. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then a couple million with them, and probably a, close to a million with a bunch of other people. When I wow. d started doing some international, it was really before Delta even got into mm -hmm. being an international carrier of any consequence, unlike what they are today. But nonetheless, and, and in some of those locations, that had to have been biplanes, right? Oh, trust me, <laughs> the Haviland Twin Otter. I flew a five-stop flight from Decoin, Illinois, to Lafayette, Louisiana. Took made five stops on the de, de Haviland Twin Otter, and, oh. and and it's basically supposed to be a seaplane. Okay, it's supposed to be an aquatic plane with floats on it, you know, to land on the water. But they you use took, it. You took it right across the middle. Do, well, it probably stopped on the Mississippi River, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been nice, but we didn't have we had wheels. You just followed it right. We down. had wheels, but a lot of a lot of airlines. It was Air Illinois. I remember that. I flew airlines at. Lord. Air Illinois. Air Illinois. And uh, oh, they were a lot of taxes on some, that one. But it was <laughs> kind of surprising that went out of business. I just wish for the first five or six years. I started traveling probably about 1975. And the frequent flyer program didn't come into being until 81. Oh, wow. During that time, Millican had gone completely to synthetic. I mean, not by a little bit, but one day to the next, they went from jute backing to synthetic backing, to action back. I mean, they had the first Hatchock Plymouth was making it for them and all kinds of interesting challenges in, in manufacturing. But the challenges really began when the guys who were used to installing jute got a hold of it. Mm -hmm. And up in, Paul, in your part of the world, in the upper Midwest. In winter? I, I saw some places in the upper Midwest where, you know, you're not at the end of the world, but you could hit a three iron and hit the end of the world from where I was standing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was Williston, that's North That's still Dakota, where I do That's still where I do inspections. Bemidji, Minnesota, beautiful places like that. that you, know, you got to go. and but, All over the place. But, you know, all over the place. So I was traveling, basically, I had to go out. Obviously, nobody could get the stuff to stay on the floor. It, it wrinkled. So I had to go out and show them how to install it, reinstall it, and guarantee it for a year's time through a whole seasonal cycle. Mm -hmm. with, and, and I think I did 175 individual restretches all over the place, going all the way from Western Canada wow. down to, <laughs> to Florida. Wow. And basically never only had one where, where it actually was so, it was so stiff. It was actually a latex trial that was shipped by mistake. And it, the styrene content, the latex had been jacked way up to see if they could get bare tough binds. And the roll, when we brought it back to returns, I'll never forget this. I was out there because I said, you failed on this one. You got to go out and see what it looks like when it comes back. So they had it coming in. It was nasty, of course. About a 50-foot roll, it was a pretty good size area, rolled up on a heister pole. When they unrolled it and popped it off the heister pole, it dropped down and it rolled itself completely back up. <laughs> <laughs> so, now you know, that's a sight so, to so right away, he said, well, I don't, I don't think I had a real good chance. What it did was it just pulled the tackles out of the floor. 
Yeah. You know? I bet it did. And I drilled and plugged every piece of tackless I went to was on a concrete floor. I, I took it long. I drilled and plugged everything because I wasn't going to take any chances. But <laughs> even that wasn't enough for this thing. So, but, but Curl, curling carpet. No, that's a that's a new well, one. Well, I think we well, may discuss curling here at some point. Kind of a different kind of curl. It's an overall <laughs> kind of curl. You know, the uh, why do you stretch carpet to anticipate expansion? Well, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody kind of forgot uh, uh, during this period of time. But during that, during, I would leave on Sunday and maybe not come back not the next Sunday, but the following Wednesday. Wow. And be gone and hit ten or fifteen different places, all over the place, and mm. I wasn't getting any miles for it. That's really bad. Right. Of course, I now have an exactly zero balance of all my miles because my wife, it is her mission in life, is to see every to city, see every <laughs> single one of them. Yeah, every city, not not country, <laughs> city. And I had somebody asked me just the other day, said, "How's your wife doing?" I said, "Well, fine. Why do you ask?" I said, "Well, you haven't been anywhere almost two weeks." So <laughs> I, figured, I figured she was sick. <laughs> but anyway, that, guys. that's about the time my wife goes, don't you have somewhere you can go? <laughs> I, I, let, I left Milliken because of some, we had some constitutional differences uh, about the way they were doing things. I was not happy at all, but left uh, the 05 and went in, in partnership with, with Lou Migliori and LGM and Associates, who's a great guy. We had a wonderful time uh, beginning of this year. Of 2019, we dissolved our partnership. I'm still working with him. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we still converse all the time. <clears throat> he, he calls me whenever he has to do a decimal fraction because he, he can't do those. <laughs> 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 so I'll help him out a little bit with the math, you know, but, but no. So what's your phone number? I might, I might need some help. <laughs> <laughs> People, you, United Carpet used to be United Carpet up in Detroit. That's yeah. now Bruce, Bruce, Bruce's company. Oh, uh, right, right. <clears throat> Amy used to say it's one eight hundred call Sam. That was what they did when they had a question. But anyway, the so I was with there and we had a wonderful time doing similar things. We're, Lou, Lou is an LGM basically is disinterested third party uh, inspections expert witness type stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, to some extent, he also writes a column which I participated in from time to time every month. The commercial flooring report. So. Mm -hmm. I was with Lou until the beginning of this year. Of course, the, the entity that was actually a partner with Lou's company, LGM and Associates, was my my own company, Specialty Flooring Solutions, which is the LLC I started in 2005. Okay, when, when so Specialty okay. Flooring was a member in, in Lou's LLC. Uh, separated now, Specialty Flooring Solutions is the company under which I operate currently. Yeah. So. And still doing the same thing. Now you're doing uh, looking at claims and expert witness work. And what I do does ha really hasn't changed a great deal from what I was doing, you know, when I was with Millick. Uh, the because I I was doing I, I must have been in thirty depositions while I was with Millican because of very because they were you know, yep. getting a lot of lawsuits, patent infringement, that sort of things, uh, different things after the fire, Lord. There was the lawyers were everywhere at that point in time. I was being deposed every second week, it seemed like. So I, that's part of what you do in the current position I'm in. Uh, and you also are in a position to uh, work with trade associations, which I've, I've been involved with. You, know, you notice I'm wearing the FCICA yeah. shirt yep. today. Yep. Uh, I, I came with them. I'm, I'm now a new member. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's, I saw that. That was on my badge last I time. I saw that. <laughs> And I've only been in since 1983, okay? <laughs> yeah, new member. It's yeah. like six months after they started. I missed the very first get-together that they did, but I was at the second one. I've been at pretty much everyone since then. Yeah. I'm through up and down to the small period of time when they basically 
close the doors. Yeah, almost. And it, it now, I think, is really thriving and, and doing well. But I, I put a great, great deal of stock by trade associations. It, it's, a, it's a modality where you can exchange valuable information in a non-competitive environment. And I think yep, that you absolutely. can't put a value on that. Uh, the, the networking is extremely important. I think I shared with you that when I was out working with Lou and still to today, some of my most beneficial and lucrative contacts and referrals have come via the FCICA and my contacts mm-hmm. with FCICA. Well, when we were in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago for the <clears throat> show, we interviewed Seth. Seth was our guest, yes, and that yes. was one of the things we talked about yeah. is, is what Seth and I enjoy about FCICA is when we're there, we're not doing the dog and pony show. We're not, you know, we're not always on. Mm-hmm. It's Sonny and Seth and Brent and Kevin, and we're talking yes. about flooring, yes. and we can interact and share things without it being without being competitors. Exactly, exactly. So that's, that, that's what that, that's the, I really do cherish about FCICA, and I, do, I did mean to use the word cherish because I do cherish it. I do. Because when we go there twice a year, it's some of the best networking and, and, and quite honestly, fellowship is what I call it with my friends there. And, and we can relax and talk about things and, exactly. and, and then have a cigar with you. And you can't, you can't put a value on being able to do that because you yeah. can't duplicate it through any other no. methodology that I'm aware of. Yep. I've never been able to get any, anywhere close to being able to get the information. I also am a member, uh, well, I'm a paid consultant for Fuse Alliance. Mm-hmm. Lou does Starnet, basically. And, okay. But Fuse, and I, I think the world, that's one of the most uh, better buying groups that I've, I've worked with. They really do a nice job of giving their members great benefits they really do but nonetheless mm-hmm. again that's kind of where i am today and you know how i got there uh, and- I, I would agree with that as fcica i think fcica has a great culture within the membership and the and the and the associates and that interchange is really valuable you you don't always get that with different associations no, and, no. and having that ability to share you know not just share your experiences but to have it shared in a in a respectful way you know there's a there's times where you get to things like that and that all anybody wants to do is prove how smart they are. And, and, you know, and well, there's still the newcomers still try to do that. Well, <laughs> you know, but the thing I don't like is when you, you come there with an agenda that is not group based, not community based, basically when you're mm-hmm. working with something like an FCICA mm-hmm. uh, organization, you know, really, you know, I, don't think you can put a real, real value on on getting that type of. I wish more people realized that you have to come and get into that situation before you get the true value. Right. You can't appreciate yeah. not just what, one what trip, you're paying right. your membership dues for or your sponsorship dues or whatever it may be. You can't appreciate the value you're getting from that unless you come and participate mm-hmm. and enter right. that environment, that community environment that I feel every time I go yep. to a meeting and been doing it. You know, since again 1983, I've yeah. been been coming well, to the FCICA. Well, like what you said before about Bruce and and, and um, Amy, I mean, the value of being able to pick up the phone and call someone like you—it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. But they have that relationship with 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 the Ardexes, with the with with me, with mm-hmm. you know all these other manufacturers, <clears throat> and they just have a direct line to the technical support. And you know what? They're more successful. Oh, There's no no doubt in my mind they're more successful because they have those those outlets. It's always better to have a number to call and a name at the other than that number. Right. When you're dealing with Which, manufacturers in particular, I mean, I was in customer service. I received phone calls 
dozens of them every day <laughs> on problems, basically. And basically, it's mostly guys who either been to my class uh, or done other things. And I still see people today who remember coming to Millican. I was teaching the certified installation contractor huh. class. It's a four-day class for pattern carpet, modular carpet, what have you, that we did. And they had to demonstrate certain skills. They became... Uh, in effect, the qualifying individual allowed their the dealership that sponsored them or the entity that sponsored them to become a certified contractor. Okay. So Man manufacturer based it, training. It, it right. was manufacturer based training. Okay. So I would do, and I still see guys today. I mean, twenty years later that remember coming to the class and going to the guest house. Mostly that's what they remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 nonetheless, you know, that's a valuable experience having a name at the other end of a number you call. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to call <clears throat> Microsoft customer support, <laughs> and we won't we won't go yeah. into you know yeah, what, exactly. what you hear on the other end. This this is this is Fred from Des Moines. He speaks with an unusual accent. You know? Thank you, Charlie. Yes, <laughs> but I digress. So <laughs> you you say that as though that doesn't happen. I mean, when I call down to Dalton, sometimes I think I'm speaking to someone from a foreign country. So. Well, that, that's what you mean so by better. a lot there, Paul? Oh, well, <laughs> two people separated by a common language. Yes. The, 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 I thought you were going to say a single chromosome. You know, chromosome. <laughs> Lewis, <laughs> Jeff Foxworth says, if your family tree does not branch, <laughs> you might be a This is a family tree for Dalton. <laughs> Oh, wow. So much for getting shares in Dalton. Oh, there we go. There it goes. <laughs> but that's kind of just a brief, a brief look at, you know, where I came from in this business. And, you know, the majority of what I know today, you know, I will contribute to, to, to my time I spent with Millican. You know, I learned a bunch on my hands and knees, but I learned a lot more seeing from the man how on the other made, side. Sure. all the way from the, the polymers, the actual and being a chemist, I can appreciate that, seeing it made through the entire process, and you kind of get the, the whole you, overall you, uh, you were uh, uh, a large part of the development of carpet tiles, too, weren't you? I was just about the time I came in uh, 72, I guess it would have been 71. One of these days, my memory will get better. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Believe that. <laughs> better every day. <laughs> when I came, that was just beginning to develop modular carpet. And that, that comes with the whole Millican interface mm -hmm. split. Basically, you know, Ray Anderson was then working for Millican, you know, at the time. Uh, and basically, when Millican bought Callaway, Ray Anderson, who was the founder and, and, and an absolute bona fide card-carrying genius, in my opinion, marketing, manufacturing, everything. But he was working for Callaway at the time that they were bought. And basically, when they decided to go into modular carpet, into carpet tile, they had two different ideas about which technology they should pursue, you know, and basically, you know, unfortunately, when you have the misfortune of being with the company that is purchased, not the purchasing company, mm. you know, your IQ goes down by about 70 points. I can relate you, to that. Yeah, I, you can, several times. Victor, I mean, uh, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> but, but basically, of course, you know, Millican listened to their own people and went to a technology which was good, perfectly wonderful. This is old fusion bonding technology. This is going back away. Almost nobody does it anymore. Millican's mm -hmm. abandoned. Interfaces abandoned. It, it all is either it's, it's the fabric formation is now exclusively tufting for modular carpet. So that notwithstanding. That's kind of a look at where I come from. Mm -hmm. and 
get me keep me off these tangents, or I will I will disappear <laughs> from time. To time. No, you're no, fine. Yeah. You're no, fine. that's what that's what we're here. That's what we're here about, really. And um, you you had mentioned but, before you you had talked about some of the the training that you were doing at Milliken, mm -hmm. and I think that'd be a good time for us to bring up what we're doing, Paul. We've uh, we we've just finalized and scheduled the very first NAFCT heat weld and flash cove certification oh, oh. course. So okay, so you're going to bring them in. We're going to bring them in, we're going to train them and we're going to give them a certification. And they got to they got to show you. Yeah, there's some people are going to fail. Well, if, if <laughs> you don't perform, have it's fail, performance testing, yes. It really yeah, it doesn't mean on. anything. Our right. failure was low uh, for the certification program I ran. It was probably considerably less, it's about 1%. Mm -hmm. But because, you know, geez, we let the guys use an open book for the written test we gave. <laughs> right. And they had to, basically, the, the practical test was they had to do and show basic skills. Right. Layout and installation and, and, in and also in pattern matching and what have you. They had to show those basic skills to right. be certified. And, that, and that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Ours is going to really be hands-on. You're yeah. going to have to do inside corners, outside corners. It's got to be. Um, but we uh, got, we're excited. We've we got, got Mike Pigeon. Yeah. We got dates yeah, on it. March got, 17th, 18th, 19th, and... No, no, Alec that'd be February. February, oh my God. February 17th through 19th. All these people are going to show up in March, and what are you going to do with them? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's February 17th through 19th. Yeah. Ardex is graciously hosting it up in Aliquippa. Oh, at the, the training center up yep, there? Yep, in Aliquippa. Yeah. And uh, we got Mike Pigeon from Ropey. He's going to be one of the, ins uh, the instructors. Uh, Daniel Gonzalez, he's an installer. Oh, yeah. He's going to be an instructor. And we're looking to get one more. Uh, we're working with a couple of people right now. We just... Can't drop the name just yet, no, we, but um, yeah. hoping to have 20 to 25 people, and uh, we're really excited about it. It's the first of many that we're yeah. going to do, yeah. and um, we just found that there's really a uh, there was a missing, there was training missing for mm -hmm. for resilient altogether. Yeah. But especially flash cove and heat weld, we found that in bigger cities, there's guys that's all they do because mm -hmm. they don't have people who can do it so someone else one person's doing the install another mm -hmm. guy's coming back flash and coming back that's yeah or heat welding doing the welding and, the, and yeah. that that yeah. just goes well he did it yeah he that's his fault and it causes an issue so if we mm -hmm. can train the guy who's going to be doing it all um that would be best and then once we're done with that we're going to segue right into a, a, a commercial resilient flooring installer certification yeah and, and, and that's that's that is a needed thing really since Armstrong quit yep. doing their training programs, which were two weeks and rigorous as all get out. Right. Uh, uh, there's really not been anything in the resilient side uh, that, that uh, took, other took than up the some slack. small manufacturer well, yeah, training they, they, yeah. one day, two day. Yeah. And you can't, you just can't do it like that. You've yeah. got to, you know, when you're talking about installation of commercial resilient flooring, you know, 80% of what you're talking about is going to be floor prep. Mm -hmm. Right, then a little bit spend, of layout. We spent two days on floor prep alone well, in the ISSI class. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. When you're installing resilient flooring, particularly ones that are going to be finished at a fairly high gloss or that come with a high gloss, well, shiny screen. You, 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 <laughs> yes, sir. Just keep riding that trial. <laughs> you know, the, the the when you do that, your your floor prep forgiveness goes essentially to zero. Yeah. When you get a high gloss. And mm -hmm. I like to see so many of the resilient guys today are making at least more of a matte finish. Right. A little shiny, but, but more of a matte finish so you can't see every well, single millionth of an inch of imperfection. Well, when, when you're using a, a fine notch trial, a 16, 30 second, 30 second, and you're using it on a corridor and you're going into it semi-wet to get transfer, and then you can still see the trial marks after that, I mean, that's 
that's incredible. So, I mean, it's difficult. You just got to make sure you get that floor flat, back roll it. And, you got to back roll after you spread it with a notch. That's a hell of a thing, but it, it's, yeah. that's what. If, if you know that. they're going to, yep. if, if, if this division talks to this division when they're doing the spec yep. and they know that, then that then that's what they should do. Yep. But too many times the guys just don't know. Communication to, between divisions. 20, <laughs> 27 <laughs> layers of finish on it, you know. But, uh, there's no way. Next thing you know, you have the CIA talking to the FBI. <laughs> So, so just to just to recap on that, that is going to be February, 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 February 17th, 18th, and 19th. It's Pittsburgh. It's Aliquippa outside of Pittsburgh, and we're going to be doing it at the Ardex facility. Uh, we'll have room information going up on the website and uh, mailers going out hopefully this week yet. Mm-hmm. And the cost in the class? Week. Cost of the class is two hundred ninety five dollars, hundred dollars a day. Can't beat it. Three days. Yeah, that's a, that that's that's pretty cheap. That's the cheapest we can get. So you'll well, make a heck yeah. of a lot more than that on your first uh, first job. On your first installation, for sure, you're you're going to make a premium. You're going to be you're going to be more valuable to the person who hires you, and that's where you're going to get the money back for sure. So Absolutely, we're we're really excited about it. We've been trying to do it for a while, and we we had a a smaller class. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a shortened class at our Resi- uh, um, Brazilian Essentials class in Charlotte last mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. and it was just so well received. Guys were on the edge of their seat trying to watch. It was uh, Mike Pigeon and okay. William Thornton, <clears throat> if you know William. I do. They were doing the class, and uh, it just we got so involved. We got a third of what we wanted to get done because it was just more detailed than we thought. So well, we the wanted questions to, keep coming. That's it. They, <clears throat> as long as they do, you better answer them. That's right. They not, wanted to learn. Doing. That was and, the best part. And you know, you can't get through something and you, you had it scheduled for 45 minutes, but yet it takes three hours. Yep. And that sounds, really like, it's really that sounds like Alex, Alex Wiedenhoff when we had him at, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, you can't, uh, you, you're going to, you're going to, um, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna give a, sh- uh, a shout out to somebody, but I decided I better not do that. <laughs> I well, was gonna, I was gonna get somebody, but that's all right. That's okay. That's okay. But I think it's great though. You know, you guys are, that's providing a real service, with 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 the the trend in the flooring business, from soft flooring to resilient flooring. I think it's yep. really, really a needed service that you need to do, and you know, you really ought to think about expanding it. And no, that's, that's, uh, we're going to focus on resilient. You've got CFI who does carpet. You got NWFA who does wood and, and nobody's focusing on the fastest growing market segment. Like you just and, said, and, and no. anybody that doesn't get 295 for a class like that. Yep. How, how long? Three days. You know, I'm going to go, <clears throat> I'm going to go with my partner Lou and just for a minute, I'm going to channel him just for a uh, minute. Uh-oh. Lou's, Lou's uh, theory, practice and belief on pricing was that when you, if you tell them the price, if they don't flinch, you're too low. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the threshold of pain. True story. Pricing, True you know? story. Because yeah. <laughs> you really need to think about with the value you're bringing. Oh, I, after yeah. you get it established, Th- that price will go up. There's no doubt the price of this class will go up. And uh, what we're going to do after we do this initial class, we're going to get, you know, make sure that we've got it the way we want it. We're going to bring it to Dalton and we're going to invite all the manufacturers yes. to come in. Let's get their support. And then they can start saying, hey, look, yeah. we you need an NAFCT um, well, certified yet, installer. You have to have. Yeah, exactly. This in order you have to, to have it to be, quote unquote, certified yeah. to install my product. You know, and that's that's very much needful. And once you do that, now you're talking about. 
something where the supply and demand had just shifted to the demand side. Yeah, exactly. It, well, it, it exactly. already is, you know, in my opinion. There's very little supply and there's a tremendous amount of demand or at least need. Yeah. yeah, and, and yeah. Paul and I go back and forth on that. As far as is there really, uh, is there really the shortage of of the installers? Because if there was, our contingency is uh, rates would go up if there really was a shortage. I think there's pockets of the country where there's not enough installers, mm. but overall, you know, I I don't know. But what we want to do is we want to be able to bring people in, and we we've, we've got programs that we're that we're setting up and we're working with manufacturers, mm -hmm. we're going to put together a two week course. If somebody wants to come in and be an apprentice, yes, that's really going to be a helper, but I'm not supposed to use that word. <laughs> <I understand. laughs> hey, but a two week course for an apprentice, yep. Yep. let them do that and then go out and work with some installers for a while. Yep. And if they like it, then they can come back and take the four to five week course and then they can graduate being a mechanic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're, we are doing things. We want to introduce not only train the people who are in the industry, we want to bring in new blood. And we've got a couple of um, organizations that, that we've been talking to that have kids who are looking for, you know, training and things like that, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of them out there who are just not going to go to college. Well, absolutely. Right? And, and you're looking at the, the boat schools, the Votech schools, right? Things like that. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> I think that's a good outlet for that type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's a very honorable way to make a living, and you can make a good bit of money. You can do it. You can do very well. <clears throat> you're good at it, and you know, and demand is out there. Mm -hmm. It's happening, and so you know, basically, I think you're you're on the right track with that for sure. Yeah. Or and, and you don't clearly, have to be good at it. I mean, look at me. I'm like I'm like the <laughs> no. Bobby Cox of flooring. I wasn't gonna I, say anything. I never was <laughs> good at actually doing it, but I can coach but, the but, hell out of it. But somebody has a chance <laughs> to come watch like Mike Pigeon. You know, oh, yeah. Heat well. Yeah. That guy. I've seen a guy do it before. And you know he's got the magic hands. He's talented. <laughs> There's really, no doubt. Yeah, guy's come, come learn from him for three days for two hundred ninety-five dollars. Yeah, get out your checkbooks, folks. So, so one <laughs> of the things not to 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 transition here because my transitions are always so smooth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Knowing that you are an expert in claims, you're a chemist. You've worked in the manufacturing industry for most of your career. Uh, one of the big concerns or one of the more common concerns we're seeing today in Brazilian flooring is curling or deviation from flat or planar stability. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I've heard that word. You've heard that word. Heard uh, we're, we get uh, uh, manufacturers, some at this point that are saying that uh, that can't be determined in the field or that it's installation related or that it's uh a re result of vapor emissions from the subfloor. In your experience, mm -hmm. um, how do you, can you tell whether it's manufacturing, manufacturing related curling in the field, or is it something that you, you requires laboratory testing? And let me ask this first, before you answer that, I want your definition of planter. What is it? Planar instability. Planar instability, <clears throat> instability. Is, is the word that I, mean, I, I kind of. I guess word. I'm guilty of coining that word. I don't know. I, I don't. <laughs> that don't remember hearing it anywhere else before I, I used it. I wrote it in some articles and what have you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I and the report. Yeah. I base it on the word planar. If you look up the definition of planar, the simple definition is wait for it, flat. Okay. <laughs> and basically, flat. Instability means it's not, wait for it, flat. 
right? <laughs> so, so, Stop so, your confusing so, me. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, the planar instability, yes, planar, it's actually planar interface instability has to do with a colloidal system, and that's a system where the, the particle size of the suspended particles is in the nanometer range. It's in the 10 to the minus 6, 10 to the minus 7th centimeter. Tiny, Tiny, small particles in suspension where you have two phases coming together, and the interface between the phases becomes unstable and not clearly defined. That's okay. really what that really defines in its planar interface instability, not just planar instability. But yeah, but as a wise man once said, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I believe that was the bard <laughs> himself that said that. But regardless of what you call it, whether you call it curl, you call it dome, uh, you call it cup, Mm -hmm. Some people, that, that's a term yeah. that's used sometimes. Whatever you call it, it means it's not staying in contact. Whatever the flooring is, it's not staying 100% in contact with the floor. And mm -hmm. in my experience, uh, which you know, is only about 48 or 49 years messing with this stuff, <laughs> uh, in my experience, if you have something that inherently does not lie flat, okay, it does not come out and be in contact with the floor with very, very small variations. Basically, all the glue in the world is not going to make it stay down. Mm -hmm. Temporarily, yes. You know, I, I did some studies when I was in Millican. I used all kinds of solvent-based and, and, and also water-based contacts. I used two-part moisture-curing polyurethanes. Uh, I used some epoxies. Every what, six months, because I had a carpet tile that I knew was curled. It's curled. No question about it. I glued it down with a stuff, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, indeed, it was flat. And came back. In a month, it was still flat. Yeah, when it made you it, it flat, it made it made it about six months before just the very edge started coming up. About, in my opinion, you can begin to see with the normal lighting you get in offices and commercial spaces. You can begin to see curl or dome at about a thirty second of an inch. Okay, mm. at a sixteenth, you, you know it knocks yeah, you down. Yeah, you very Trip much can over. see it at that yeah. point in time. But basically, it was coming back, and now what you've done is. You've taken a piece of what's supposed to be a modular floor covering, whether it be LVT, whether it be modular carpet, whatever it may be. You've taken that, and you've now, because now you got to take it out, because uh, you've taken away any possibility of removing the causation factors that caused it to curl in the first place. You've taken away that, and now you got to cut it up in strips that wide just to get it off the floor. Right. And you've done your customer a great disservice as you turn what they bought as a modular carpet for the flexibility, removability, replaceability, and you've taken that away from them. So, you know, basically, you know, I haven't found glue to be a viable solution. Sure. Either more glue or let's put the glue down a different way. Uh, neither one of those, in my opinion, works. Well, it's the same the same principle when you're talking about expansion and contraction, mm -hmm. not just not just being flat or doming, uh, expansion and contraction. We've had uh, Brent gave that presentation at the uh, Flooring Essentials, right? Was it Brent fight? Jim? Was it Brent or Jim? I think one. I think they both did it. But they gave a presentation of thermodynamics mm -hmm. and how it affects the the, the flooring. And, and too many times... That was Brent. As glue, yeah, as a glue guy, I get this. Well, can't your glue stop that from happening? And, and you know, it's just like what you say. No, there's no adhesive in the world that's going to keep that... From doing that, no. if it wants to move, it's going to move, mm -hmm. and its strengths are much stronger than than a bond line of an adhesive. It, it, and it's it's really, I used to call it gravity upside down. Okay, <laughs> basically because and it's not so much the 
ergs or millipascals of force that's being exerted is the fact that it's unrelenting. It never stops. It never stops. It never stops, and it's continually exerting that, and eventually it wins. It's going to get, and yeah. So, you know, you wind up wanting to return to it's whatever, where it wants to be. Mm-hmm. It's looking for a way to get back there, just like moisture tries to seek equilibrium, modular floor covering. If it's not inherently flat, it wants to curl, and eventually it will, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And most of the people I know, the, the, the folks in the industry, agree with that. And well, Aside from it being a manufacturer issue, what other what um what outside things can cause the tile to move or to 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 dome or or anything or are there other things that can cause that other than being the uh, being the, the manufactured Excuse well me. in some if you do get if you have a tile that is inherently unstable dimensionally and that's a whole different animal right. from from being unstable in the planar standpoint flat standpoint if it actually expands, obviously, if you've exp- installed the stuff and it actually has an expansion factor, now suddenly you've got more product than you have floor to put it on. Yeah. The only result can be this, right, or this. You know, depending on which that, that, that's that's curl and that's dome or cup, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And, and and on cup, now I have seen very tiny amounts of cup because some manufacturers of carpet tile build a little dome into it. That has a chance to actually settle out and go away. But in my experience, once the edges lift and, and it's not the edge flat and just inside the edge is it's kind of puffy looking, lack like mm-hmm. of a better word, mm-hmm. that has a chance to be resolve itself. Just kind of walk yeah, itself yeah. out. And but even when but even when you're on a on site inspection and you look at something that's dimensionally unstable, yeah. you can take a difference between I mean, you can measure somewhat that in the size of the plank. Yeah. Uh, if you're accurate enough with a I've got a couple of different ways of doing it, but you can also measure the size of the hole that's there versus the size of the plank. So those are things that you can determine that the planks change size. Exactly. And so really to do that, Paul, most of the time, you know, you ask about, can you say that definitively while you're on site without any additional data? And in my own personal preference, I prefer to take samples that are as shipped as they came from the manufacturer. They hadn't been on the floor, hadn't been cleaned. Nothing's been done to them. They're right out of the box, okay? Randomly selected, put them through, and there there are very, very rigorous and well-accepted industry tests for dimensional stability. Okay. But you're but you're still talking about the difference between when you find something that's oversized yeah. versus finding something that's the nor- the size it's supposed to be and the hole that was there is smaller, so it was most likely installed cold, right? Or are you talking yeah. it could are you be. talking all of them? You don't see a lot of change in, in, in We'll go to carpet tile, modular carpet. It's engineered primarily today uh, with the layers of fiberglass and, and other stabilizing influences or, that are actually put into the structure. Typically, it doesn't change much dimensionally. Mm. Uh, probably even the most liberal manufacturers don't go much more than a tenth of a percent. Oh, wow. Well. And that's not much. Okay. Of the overall size. Well, the over, yeah. basically, now if you think about it, we do it metric, it's easier. Within what temperature range? Well, that's with, that's as determined by one of the stability tests, like the BS uh, 986, or that's actually the EN and European norm 986 today, the ASTM 7570, which is derived from the old Aachen test from Aachen, Germany. It's been around for about 40 years. Basically, wow. you expose the tile to different environmental conditions to simulate, and the industry agrees that, that it does is these what they do. It simulates what the product is going to be exposed to in its lifetime. 
And basically, it will determine, number one, the, the 7570 test and also the European norm test will determine not only the dimensional change, but they can also observe and quote the, the planar change, curl and dome, that is that is precipitated by those same environmental changes, okay? So you get both of those in that situation. But when I've got one, when I think there's expansion, I prefer to see the actual 7570, do the, do the test on it after it's fully conditioned, it's been through the process, what was your dimensional change? Mm -hmm. But again, to have a failure, you got, you got to have a test procedure to look at whatever supposedly failing, but what good is a test procedure you know, what good is shooting if you don't have a target? You right, know? right. How much you how are you gonna There's learn no whether you did any good? No There's no performance standard quoted. Performance standard, right. And, for flatness. And for flat well for flat well, flatness or for dimensional change. Precise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's no if there's no uh, performance standard quoted, you don't you can't really define a success or a failure. Although, you know, in my position, you know, as an outside industry expert, for lack of a better word, basically you know, I have some pretty clear ideas that if you allow every tile to shrink, shrink one millimeter, which is just a little over a 32nd of an inch, that means that every single tile, you're going to have a 16th of an inch gap, gap between every two tiles, right. either in the front and back direction or in the yeah. side direction or both. And if it shrinks that much, now if it expands that much, you know, that can cause curl. That can mm -hmm. cause what appears to be planar issues with the tile. It, it will, because there's more tile, or more LVT than there is floor. It was put in, snugged up, and if it then changes dimensions, you got a problem. But mm -hmm. most tiles today are stabilized so much that if they have you know unresolved tensions in the fabric and they want to pull back, they want to shrink a little bit. Now before, the, uh, they just would shrink. But if you have them truly stabilized dimensionally, they can't shrink. So that force, instead of causing a change in dimension, causes this. this, causes lift to the edge. Gotcha. That See, so that's that kind of, and I understand it's kind of a gray area. I wish manufacturers would come out and take a stand and say, our carpet tile is going to be flat and it will meet this standard on this test. To this, to yeah. this, to this measurement on yeah. this test yeah. Yeah. under these conditions. Here's the test you run and here's what the performance standard is not to exceed, basically. So, but to, Sun, but to Sunny's question, then what other things can cause that tile from, mm -hmm. from a, from a vinyl plank standpoint as much as possible, but it, I mean, the two relate yeah. modular carpet and, and it, it, they're relative to each other. So yeah. I understand that, but. More so with, with the LVT and the vinyl tile, the conditioning becomes an issue because if you put it in <laughs> at 25 degrees centigrade or 25 degrees Fahrenheit and it warms up to 70, there's going to try to be, particularly in those that are not as rigorously stabilized uh, mm. through climatic change as carpet tile are today, you know, you're going to see some change. Something's going to move. <laughs> if you've installed them nice and snug at 25 degrees and suddenly they become 70, chances are pretty good you're going to get peaks. Mm -hmm. Both directions, most likely. And is that an imbalance within the in the plank then? That So where I see it frequently, uh, where it appears to me to be manufacturing related, and you lay the planks down and they're they're not touching or they're not overlapping. So, you know, they're not compressed. Mm -hmm. um, is that the layer? Is that like the, the decorative layer of the surface that maybe has, I remember during the carpet tile curling mm -hmm. process through the dryer, there was some talk about the way it would sag within the, within the dryer. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they put it all together, 
that was stretched out and cooled down, and that's what basically gave it that inherent tension within that would cause the edges to pull up. Yeah. Is that kind of the same thing within, or is it more of a uh, composition of the layers that causes the... Well, normally it's the way the layers are joined together. You know, everything everything in the process, when you get a multi-layer product that needs to be flat, you've got to make sure that you have either exactly equal tensions or no tension. And any of the, you know, differential tension, I guess would be the way I want to say it, because if everything has exactly the same amount, there's not going to be any movement. But if you have, let's just say, with a carpet tile, you've got the face of the carpet tile, which goes through a manufacturing, it gets tufted, number one, then it's going to have to get probably a binder put on the back of it, which is a continuous process where the material is actually pulled through the process, mm -hmm. typically with what are called pin rollers and other, other situations, sometimes with tenor frames, whatever. Tenor frames stretch widthwise. you got overfeed of a process where you put 100 feet in this end and 101 feet comes out the other end. There's elongation in the machine direction and there's sometimes expansion in the cross machine direction. Anytime you get that, it wants to go back Right. Like it was, okay? And so if you join that to something and you don't make sure that, or you make sure that the process itself has very little elongation, and a lot of people have gotten by this by literally carrying the product through the process instead of on a tenor frame, on a belt. So you're supporting sure. it and you're transporting it through so it doesn't get elongated. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't have any tendency to come back. That's the front and back edge curl that you see so often. The point mm -hmm. in the back of the era typically is Machine overfeed somewhere yeah. in the process. And one of the layers, and typically I would say probably more typically the face and the primary backing, and is probably more likely what you're talking because if you, if you look at a carpet tile and you talk about the cross-sectional perimeter, okay, the cross-sectional equator, I should say, the midpoint in the cross-section, if there's more tension above, it curls. If there's more tension below the equator, it domes. So, mm -hmm. so or, or differential tensions above and below the equator is kind of how I look at it, but it needs to be engineered to be flat. And, and that's, that's, believe me, it ain't easy. That sounds mm -hmm. easy. That is, one, that is the toughest thing. A little bit of math. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a tremendous amount of expertise. Engineering. And, and, almost, and almost art in manufacturing. Sure. And the way the machines are designed, knowing that you've got to make a product that's designed to be a modular carpet and not just a piece of broad room cut up into you know, into yeah, times, right. into, into pieces. You know, you've got to design a product from the get-go that's designed to do that. Anything else you do. So to your point, their, their tension is in the design itself. Well, it, it's in the manufacturing. The balance of the it's, tension it's, is it's, is what they know it's got to have it. To, that's part of what's got to make it lay flat. It's in the physical process of manipulating it through yeah. manufacturing. Okay. You have to have to have those processes under control, run exactly the same way and have to prove that running it that way actually produces a product that's viable. Right. You know, once you establish that, you've got to stay very close to those parameters. And, and you have to monitor them and be aware of them. And all manufacturers, basically, back in the day when Millican carpet tile came off the end of the line, it went into the cold room at 65 degrees Fahrenheit, 10% relative humidity. Hmm. And it had to, and basically, it had to have no more curl then it was like the, the sum of all of all four edges couldn't be later, greater than, and no no single lift could be more than this amount. You know that's the standard, right? Yeah. You, and th those went out day in and day out, and millions and millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of yards, and it stayed flat. I won't say it all did. Well, some of it they missed, yeah. you know. But 
if you step up with a standard that says, here's a test you need to run, 75, 70, whatever, that's probably the only one out there. And here's it's what it should close, be. Man. You know, here's what the dimensional change should be. And there should be no more. You can use the Aachen test or the 7570 test for planar change. You know, it's acceptable according to the procedure from ASTM. Does it cause it? Yeah. Does it cause it or is there a change, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it is. It, you use it for dimensional change and for planar change as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no pass fail. No. No, there is no – well, of course, the, just the ASTM never, or very rarely, unless there's – they'll sometimes say in the absence of any other standard from a, you know, pack yeah, manufacturer, glue manufacturer, yeah. use these standards, this is what you use to determine mm -hmm. with, but it, it goes to the most rigorous standard if there's any question. Right. You know, that's typical ASTM stuff. They don't quote standards. None, so, of, the, none of the bodies who define test procedures typically quote what you what should have results, on that test. Sure. They simply tell you how to obtain – and what to do to the product to determine its tendencies in that direction. But, but on the 7570, the, yeah. the ASTM standard, that's not something inspectors can do on their own. That's oh, no, something no. they and need to send out. Said. They've got to send it to a laboratory. Yeah. It takes time. It takes you're about not a week just to do. Look at a, you're not going to look at a floor and go, yeah. ah, planner instability, I'm going to send it out for 7570. No, you need to do the test, and then you can fix it. You, you, need, you need to, and that's, that's one of the things that it's, and you must test uninstalled as shipped product. It's clearly been, you, it came directly from a, an, an, hopefully an unopened shipping container, mm -hmm. a box, and you selected it, and there's a good rigorous chain of custody of what happened to it. From the time what, what, else will, what else will cause it, though? What else will cause a consistent curl? So in, in my experience on a floating floor, you're not going to have compression cause every single tile or every single plank through the installation, mm -hmm. uh, curl the same amount. You're going to have maybe a buckled area. You're going to have, you know, some sign that the flooring's compressed, but you're not going to cause that that consistency of variation yeah. throughout an installation. So, but how do you determine in field uh, to give an opinion on whether or not it's mm -hmm. site related versus po possibly manufacturing related? If I see consistent every single plank, if you will, is up about the same amount, you know, that screams manufacturing to me. Right. Uh, and now yeah. would I still take samples and submit them to a test? The problem is, particularly for, for LVT and LVP, there's really not a test. You know, I, I use a test that's called, you know, planar change, high and low humidity, you know, which is mm -hmm. something that, uh, that one of the testing labs that I use has kind of invented, and they've submitted it, but so far it hadn't been accepted as an ASTM established test protocol. So, how does humidity, how does high and low humidity affect the? Well, humidity affects if, if if it's a if it's a pile fabric, it does affect the twist in the yarn. Okay, so for and the it, carpet, it, yes, yep, but not the vinyl right. plank. Yep, but you know, I I don't have a lot of data to say that it won't doesn't affect it at all, because normally when you run that test. When you go warm and damp, whatever it is, whatever whatever original plane was, let's say if it was up two thirty seconds of an inch or a sixteenth, it flattens out. And as but as it gets dry and cool, that's that's historically the uh, the magic formula for for causing a product that has any tendency to curl. It'll cause that tendency to manifest. So so yeah, winter in Wisconsin. Yeah. 
Yeah. Got and it I, on the first try. <laughs> and, and I think that's what it is. Just when it gets hotter, you raise the yeah. humidity when you do testing. And when you get yeah. colder, you yeah. reduce the humidity. It's just kind of the, been the status well, quo for yeah. what we're doing because we, it, we did that for years. Cycle. I mean, starting in about November, actually October, mm-hmm. back with Milliken, October through about February became the curling season. When product, if it had tendency to curl, that's when it was going to matter. That's when it would do it. And, and typically, product will go down flat look good and but as you hit that seasonal change the tendency comes up and that's mm-hmm. so what, aware of that and they have to be able to manufacture and engineer it to deal with that that's what why they, they take six months to resolve a claim because it may go away <laughs> <laughs> hope springs, oh, did hope, i say that <laughs> hope springs eternal okay <laughs> what about uh, concrete vapor emissions then what high ph is that the story often is uh, the discussed that That'll cause plasticizer migration. That'll cause some issues with uh, changes in the composition of the planks themselves Mm -hmm. and thereby cause attention from that. Is that um, a a reasonable line of thought? I don't know of a single study that definitively links water coming out of the concrete, moisture vapor coming out of the concrete, particularly with the thermoplastic backings you have now. The, basically, they're polyolefins, most of them now. Uh, there's still some PVC out there, but mostly polyolefins, some polyurethanes, and what have you, that links, that has basically zero effect on that. As a matter of fact, if anything, putting the product in a region of relatively higher humidity, according to the test pro- protocols that I've seen run, it makes it flatter, not more curled. And so, you know, it really takes the problem away. I don't know of any study that says high pH has any effect on any of those backings. So, you know, I, I, I don't have anything to indicate that that would have a, a, an issue with it. That would do an issue. I have seen perfectly flat carpet tile literally sitting in what I affectionately call the soup du jour. You know, when the adhesive <laughs> underneath yep. has turned to goop. That's it's just it. sitting right there perfectly flat in a pH of 13 and obviously liquid water. So if it didn't curl then, right. it ain't gonna unless there's something making it curl, because that's, that's as much effect as you could possibly have. Liquid water and a soup of, of a pH of 13. Yeah. You don't have to add any water to that. It's there. So, you know, you know that's right. happening. That's as bad as it can be, and yet that tile remains flat. If it's properly engineered, it should remain flat. Now, that does other things. It will attack the adhesive and do some other stuff, but it does not attack the carpet tile. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Sonny's, Sonny's giving me warnings over there to keep. I'm about to bust. Uh, uh, yeah, Sonny's. Uh, oh, you're about to go in hour two, then hour yeah. three. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Sam, do you just want to be on every show? <laughs> <laughs> I, I left. I just stirred a pot. That's, that's all. It. I, that's that's my job. And then walk away. That's stir the, the pot. Part. Walk away. Be like a seagull. Yeah. You know. Right. Yeah, but that's this is information that comes from a, a, an area of experience where you've you've dealt with this on a manufacturing side, mm-hmm. and you've done the studies on the materials that that were being manufactured in your processes to come to these conclusions. These aren't conclusions that are based on, you know, uh, uh, not experiences that weren't real world. These are real yeah. world experiences that were studied. Yeah, these oh. things should these things that we that we do in our in our industry should be based on facts and testing. Yeah, right. I agree. So, yeah. where's the test? I'm going to do it. Where's go, the go, test? go, Sonny, go. Where's the <laughs> test that says relative humidity has any effect on floor covering? Yeah. Because even Hedenblatt doesn't even 
it suggests that it plays a part, but it doesn't really infer that it plays a part on effective floor covering. But yet we're making decisions on installation or not installing floors based on relative humidity. And Mm. it drives me crazy because Mm. the only people who are benefiting from it are people who sell mitigation systems. And I sell a mitigation system. I get it. But I'm not going to sell you one if you don't need it. I don't think that helps anybody. Absolutely. I I don't disagree. And, you know, I don't have, you know, obviously, if there's sufficient relative humidity in the concrete, okay, that that will affect some things in the system. Typically, any water-based adhesive is going to be, and some other adhesives as well, will be affected by that. But Only if it's coming to the surface. Yeah. If it's coming to the surface and it has capability of condensing to liquid water. Because now you've got pH that is in active mode. Right. pH is only active and only meaningful in aqueous solution. That's just that's without just, water. That's who just cares about pH? Yep. You don't have moisture. pH is not an issue. Mm-hmm. I'm working with with Peter Craig right now. We've been having some discussions about a test for pH. I that, like his that, little that, I like his that, little chip that, thing that, he puts that down. You yeah. don't add yeah. you don't add liquid water to the system that may or may not be there. Right. Or may not ever be there. Yeah, because if you're yeah. adding water to the pH test, guess what? You just added the water. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, pH is kind of a, you know, well, what was the pH? Well, what would you like for it to be? Yeah. Because I can pretty much on any given piece of concrete, you know, I can make it, if you get a 7, I can make that a 10. Not much problem. Okay. Yep. So it, it's. Well, we had we had that on one claim discussion. where it, was, where it yep. was an order claim, and they were, the manufacturer was claiming alkaline hydrolysis was causing plasticizer migration. And I pulled up. No, <laughs> I pulled up many, 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 many tiles. There wasn't any moisture anywhere. There was no liquid anywhere. Yep. So how can you have alkalinity if you don't have liquid, right? Good question. And then I've seen you no know, alkaline hydrolysis happen. And, and basically nothing, plasticizer migration is a diffusionary phenomenon, okay? It's, it's flowing from a region of higher concentration, which would be the back of the PVC tile, to a region of lesser concentration, which is the concrete underneath and also the adhesive layer underneath. There is a force that moves, and there's a definite, it's, it's, it's fixed first equalize. law of diffusion. There is a nice formula, <laughs> that, but the main driver is, is, is concentration one over concentration two, the concentration in the higher and in the lower. That's what drives plasticizer migration. Every single vinyl tile that's ever been made, if you put it right here on this tabletop and you leave it for three months, come and take a chip of this, you're going to find the phthalate-based plasticizers in that surface, okay? The question is, is what the plasticizer goes into, is it going to be happy with the plasticizer? Or is it going to do something funny? Now, to me, and I've I've seen, had a specific job, a huge big box store that smelled so bad, customers would go in there and write up, I love your store, but my wife gets sick every time she comes here because it smells so bad. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, that, that smell... Those, these are these are what are known as higher alcohols. That mm-hmm. plasticizer is made from a mixture of higher alcohols mm-hmm. and phthalic anhydride. Okay, and they're done. It's a, called an esterification process. But without going into all that, <laughs> those higher alcohols by themselves, some of them stink to high heaven. And that's the smell that you're smelling. It's a very noticeable. Oh, noticeable. Floor guys will know it as soon as they walk it's, in. It's noticeable, and it's and it's like the perfume of your first girlfriend. <laughs> you never forget it. It's locked in. <laughs> it's locked in. <laughs> you never forget it once you've smelled it. I can definitively say that it's happening, but I was at a store and no less a person than Peter Craig had done the moisture study on the store and he did the pH test where he added water, which if anything is going to give you a false positive, uh, and the pH was eight and a half. 
the moisture vapor emission rate was 2.7. Now, that doesn't, but, but the in situ <laughs> RH was 72. And it was like, he did a full forensic study of the store. Right. And yet the store smelled. Now, how is that possible? How is that even possible? The only explanation is the plasticizer itself was either improperly manufactured or not properly. It's supposed to be what's called steam distilled after you mm -hmm. make the plasticizer to get out all the unreacted monomers. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that properly and you don't have it locked together properly, because a lot of plasticizer comes from places where cockroaches can't live. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it does. It comes from, from, from places that are less than lovely. And, you know, there's, I forget, 600 million tons, I think, metric tons of plasticizer every year. That's the world use of plasticizer. I believe it. That's a lot of plasticizer. It's but nonetheless, you get this stuff, and if it's not properly manufactured, but the, the <laughs> what's required to trace it back and actually definitively prove that That's impossible. is virtually impossible. It's impossible. And, but, but that, to me, was by hard to prove a negative, but if you've got a store that's absolutely perfect, you've got a concrete slab that is as perfect as it could possibly be, and you put it on top of it, and boom, yeah. it Ooh. runs people out of the store, and you can take a piece of that same carpet tile, okay, right out of the box, and you don't expose it to any water. You just expose it to a relative humidity of 55%, and you create alcohols. Now, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, There's no pH. There's nothing around. Mm -hmm. we, we did a little, de little design experiment that we performed. And this was, you know, it was a big, big, huge claim I was involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, that, to me, you know, plasticizer migration is a phenomenon that occurs yeah. in and of itself and as a natural occurrence. And, 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 and there's a lot of manufacturers who stick behind the hydrolysis, yeah. and it's just not true. And, and migration happens, the hydrolysis happens when, the, when either the plasticizer itself is unstable and breaks down for no particular reason, or it does indeed, and, and thermodynamically, if it encounters a region of active high pH, usually nobody's ever been able to come up with it. Usually it's 10 and a half to 11 in order to get a significant move of the reaction so that you get enough to, to where you, to can pull get it a, out. you can get a smell. You don't oh. pull it out. Oh, to it's get coming the out. odor. Gotcha. You're breaking it down once it's out, yeah. you know? And so basically, once you get that, you know, you got to get that pH. If it, if it does encounter that, though, it will indeed break down quickly into its component parts, which are the higher alcohols. And the phthalic anhydride doesn't have any odor, but the alcohols do. And they're what's the, uh, the, the thing that you want to look at. Uh, I know Howard Kinnear was able to make up concrete coupons, which is a little samples of concrete. And he would take plasticizer and paint on them because he'd made them with a very porous, tremendous amount of surface area and had a pH of about 12. And they could get stinking about two days. I mean, powerful. Oh, wow. And so he had that kind of as a, it's kind of a disease model. You know, mm -hmm. like you have to have a disease model before you can treat things. You know, uh, so it basically, that's what I'm saying, guys. Plasticizer migration happens as a matter of diffusion out of the backing, okay? And if it's properly manufactured, shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't be a problem. Properly dosed or properly applied, that's, yeah. that's typically so, very... Yeah, it sounded to me, and maybe maybe I just wasn't comprehending what you were saying, but so if it's properly manufactured and gets to an environment where it's high pH, it can still create an odor. That's correct, yes. Absolutely. So, no question. So if you do have... Since you already have the migration, the, the migration is assumed, talking yeah. about this, the migration is assumed. Mm -hmm. If you do have that liquid coming up, so we've got condensation on the back of the tile, we've got condensation on the surface, 
and now we have the the water that's likely high pH, then that is true alkaline hydrolysis, and that is causing the that's what's causing the odor. But in the absence of water, it would be manufacturing related. That that's my opinion. Yes, yeah. Now I've stayed by that chapter and verse that that there's no plausible explanation for why that should be happening, other than. Mm Well, it's manufacturing. a manufacturing issue. Yeah, because yeah. we, we we've I've seen it a lot over a um, an epoxy resin mitigation system, mm-hmm. and then put the self leveler on top of it. Mm-hmm. High quality adhesive. You pull up that top. You got the bad smell. Pull it up. There's just it's dry as the <laughs> Mojave Desert. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I would, you know, you have a situation there where, I mean, the chances of you getting moisture. This is kind of like the big box store I was telling you about where. There was no mitigation system right. there, but you know, basically, the test on the floor itself, full forensic study of the entire, it's about sixty-five thousand square feet, was beautiful. Yeah, you pray for a floor like that. You know, it actually was below seventy-five <laughs> on average in the in situ RH test. You almost never see that. Yeah, uh, but even if even if that was higher, without the without a concentration mm-hmm. or a, a condensation of what of liquid. Yeah. You still shouldn't have that from a site-related aspect. You have to have a liquid P- to have. You have to have liquid to have pH. You have to have high pH, ten and a half to have hydrolysis to cause the breakdown of the plasticizer. Now, you do have without getting massive amounts of liquid water uh, as 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 the vapor comes up. Okay, and obviously as it comes up, you know it, it, you are going to assume that if you ever get liquid water in that environment, it's going to be fairly elevated in pH, as the capillary structure in the concrete tends to, particularly at the top where it got the old riding trowel, you tend to get a Venturi effect in the in the capillaries. They neck down, and you can get little micro-regions of water there. but Right you, at the you, surface. Yeah, you'd, you'd be able to see that, though. You'd be able to tell that and look and see that's what's going on. But uh, to me, if the floor tests perfectly, you know, there's mm. just no plausible reason for the plasticizer to break down other than that it was not stable to begin with. And this is where you get it <laughs> right away. You know, when you open the box and you separate two tile and the odor comes boiling up and knocks you down. Right. How's that the floor? You know, right. it hasn't even seen the floor yet. This, this, I had the same situation at this particular job I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but you know, that, that wound, they wound up got, they wound yeah. up getting the store replaced. So, you know, yeah, you pull it up, it's juicy on the back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know when it smells in the box, already got the plasticizer actively breaking down and actively creating the alcohols in the box. I mean, how can that possibly be the floor? And that right. to me tells me there is a possibility, and it does happen. Everything manufactured by human beings can be made badly. Yep. You know, we're still we're still imperfect. It, it, can it, or yeah, is. Boy. Ain't, ain't that the truth? Yeah. Everything that's made can be made as a second. You know, it, it's not first quality material. Likewise with plasticizer. And a lot of it comes from a lot of places where the quality control may not be that great. Mm-hmm. And I I, I I I don't have proof for that. That's just a, a supposition on my part, but it logically makes sense to me. That, what about the, what's the process then when you actually have that oily substance on the back where you physically have that uh, the oils not in a situation where you have the normal uh, changes or the normal yeah well, it, normally what that is it was just a very very high your, your load your filler load was very low and your 
plasticizer. It's a very rich mix of, of, of plastisol, which is called when you mix the plasticizer with the vinyl polymer. Mm. The vinyl polymer by itself, you know, makes, makes something looks kind of like the old tel telephones. It's hard. It's bakelite, basically. Okay, it's very very hard. Not PVC, PVC pipes, and it's not yeah. useful for anything. You know, right. unless you plasticize it to make it reliable and workable. But if you put, you obviously have to keep a, the right ratio between the the polymer, PVC polymer, and the phthalate plasticizer. And most of them are phthalates, although mm -hmm. there there's some other stuff coming around now uh, that, that that is not phthalate based plasticizers because there's been a lot of <clears throat> negative press <laughs> on phthalate based <laughs> plasticizers, to say the least. But if you, if I'm you, sure their replacements if, won't cause any claims. If your mixtures are, your mixtures are not proper, and you have too much plasticizer, you know, so plasticizer is liquid. You know, it is a kind of a semi, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, five weight motor oil, just a little bit of, of yeah. lubricity yeah. to it, and it has very, it has a little bit of an odor, but not much. You know, but fully compounded plasticizer is when it breaks down. It's where the odor happens. You have to break that liquid into its component parts before you get that that odor to happen, the higher alcohol odor. So but that liquid, that liquid plasticizer can affect the adhesives, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it makes, it basically makes a surface you can't stick anything to. Yeah. Particularly if you get enough where you literally have it as it leaches out, there's so much of it. And obviously the amount you're going to have here in the concentration, there's more plasticizer here, the higher concentration, the higher that concentration is and the bigger the differential between what it's on top of, the more flow you're going to get. Right. And but that's, that's and, and that's, to your point earlier with the with the the tile itself it's constantly wanting to move and eventually it's going to give way it's the same thing with plasticizer the adhesive can be plasticizer resistant all you want but if you keep pumping that plasticizer in there it's going to fail yeah. there's nothing that's no water based adhesive i should say that's going to be able to resist yeah, it, all that eventually it's going to break and you would hope you know plasticizer resistant adhesives you know typically uh, has an acrylic backbone Bait. because mm -hmm. chemically that's capable and it's not plasticizer proof. It simply is willing to accept What's, what it, what the, the it's like a watch. It's resistant, the, or is it waterproof? The expected <laughs> amount of water, right. or amount of plasticizer to come into it, and its properties are not affected such that the performance of the overall system would be hit. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's plasticizer resistance. You know? Yeah, because, because when a plasticizer hits a pressure sensitive, it actually makes the glue stronger. It makes it gummier, and well, it, it's, it'll it, hold it it's down. It's gooier, but after a while, it becomes, it's going to break down. It eventually. becomes instead of an adhesive, it becomes a lubricant. Right. You know, if it gets it gets it gets too greasy. You really can't get it. Won't it, it'll, it won't it won't prevent lateral movement, which is all a pressure sensitive is supposed to do. Right. Prevents movement. It becomes a suit. Yeah. Ball suit. Yeah. Even before that, <laughs> it becomes where it won't prevent lateral movement resistance because it just slides across. Mm -hmm. But. Well, I think at this point, uh, we I could do this all day. Obviously, this is uh, this is a world that uh, that I this is the part of the the business, even the inspections I enjoy. I, I, I this wasn't this isn't work. This is why I've enjoyed doing the podcast. Those conversations like this. It's, been, it's been fun talking to you guys. Yeah. It really has been. I, you know, always well, is. You know, uh, we every time it. we do it, you know, it's been fun. But uh, you know, I prefer the cigar and the joke time. But yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get, get on the plane, come down with you. We, we got, got one right here for you. <laughs> right there. And I've been looking at him the whole time. But uh, we probably should wrap it up. I think we got plenty here to talk about for the next time you're on. Sure. I'm <laughs> taking another trip here, I tell you. Well, speaking of that, I do want to say I want to give a shout out to the Courtyard by Marriott here in LaGrange, Georgia. They let us use their conference room for no charge. I said, just come in and use it. We're on their Wi Fi. 
that was really nice that of them. Really so I did nice. appreciate they were, it. I they, really were, appreciate they were on me like a cheap suit when I walked through the door. Yeah. Right down the hall. <laughs> go on the left, you know. Get in there. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I gave him the warning. I said, Sim, where can, uh, where can people get a hold of you if they want to uh, to to pursue uh, uh, oh, information oh, oh. further as far as uh, the claims yeah, they're working on? Yeah. Well, <laughs> where can people my, find you? My, my 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 mobile phone number, which is the best way to get me, probably is is area code seven zero six three 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 fifteen twenty five, and and I'm simply, of course, if you can spell Chrysler, you're probably one of among about <laughs> a million or two, you know. To, but it's S Chrysler S C R I S L E R at Charter C H A R T E R dot net. So that's my email address. And my phone number, um, certainly available anytime. And, and, and guys, you know, if anybody wants to call me, the brain picking is free. <laughs> if you don't ask me to go somewhere or get on a plane or expend some resources, I'd be thrilled to talk to you. I'll help you any way I can. You know, I would say the value there is uh, priceless anyway. So yeah. I think uh, <laughs> I, I every, time I, every time I'm close to them, I look them up. <laughs> I try to find them. I can't thank I can't uh, thank you enough, Sam. It's been a true pleasure having you on here. I thank you for your time, and I thank My you pleasure. for uh, for for joining us. Um, Sonny, where can they find you? Uh, you can always find me at uh, on my cell phone, which is four zero seven three eight three six four four six or one eight seven seven glue do G L U D U D E. Glue do you like that? Don't you? That's pretty damn good. <laughs> I do like that. Yeah. Yeah, easy, yeah. easy to remember. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, you can reach the podcast at Paul at Floor You Podcast. And you can reach me at Paul at Floor Claim Solutions. Paul at NAFCT. Just type in Paul, it'll probably get to me. It'll get um, to We got the website, FloorYouPodcast.com. Please look into the, the heat weld class. That's going to be yep. February 17th, 18th, and 19th. And We'll start and, doing email blasts next week. In that's going to be in Pittsburgh, and they got a great facility there. They really That's do. Awesome. It's going to be a good it's going to be a great class. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Sim, Sonny, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see y'all next week. I believe we've got uh, Corey uh, Dickerson coming in from. Oh, uh, Corey, going to make it back next week. That's the twelfth, isn't it? All right. Yeah, I think it's the twelfth. So. Yeah, we tried him once before, and uh, that's going to be another great interview. Good. So, yep. thank you very much. All right, you guys, have a great week, and we will see you, everybody else, next week. Thank you, Paul. Talk hope, to you later. I hope it'll get you banned from the airwaves. You know. <laughs>